Liam, are you a good kisser? Yeah, I think I'm a, I think I'm a good kisser. Oh, I think. Um, from what I've heard, from what I've been told, the feedback I've gotten is you're a great kisser. You're a good kisser. You kiss good. Call 1-900-909-3300 and hear it straight from Corey. $2 for the first minute, 45 cents for a traditional minute. Call 1-900-909-3300. Call me. 1-900-909-3300. It's very important. I have a lot to tell you guys. Please call me. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. Uh, this is the podcast where we go back and talk about films that bombed theatrically and also the critics didn't like. Brad, this is a little bit outside of the weekly schedule, right? It is. It's a, what they call a bonus episode, Troy. Yes. I don't know what we would label this, uh, auditory essay, but uh, we, we've had the opportunity, I guess, over the last three years to talk to some amazing people. I'm really excited about today. So we had somebody reach out to us. And after a little bit of an exchange, it became a really exciting opportunity to bring somebody on the show and, and really get educated on, um, let's be, let's be honest, Brad and I like movies where people are kicking each other in the face. So anytime you bring up a genre that we have just, I don't know, no background in, I mean, we've probably seen the films, but in passing, uh, it's really exciting to bring a subject matter expert to it. So this week, we're super honored to have a writer, filmmaker, and professor, Michelle Meek, to come on the show, and we're going to talk about teen comedies. Michelle, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding? The honor is all ours. Um, I, <laughs> I just want to read through your resume real quick, because I have some questions, primarily, like, when do you sleep? <laughs> Th- this is crazy. So in, in the writer category, you, you wear three hats. You've, you've written, I don't know how many articles. When I go to your website, uh, I think it goes back to 1997. NewEnglandFilm.com was the first one I saw. And in the last few years, you've written articles for Film Threat, Miss Magazine Script, Literary Hub, Entrepreneur, uh, Stage 32 in The Independent. And on top of that, you published a few books. You were the editor of The Independent Female Filmmakers, uh, book, The Mastermind Failure Club, and your most recent book came out in April, which is Consent Culture in Teen Films. It, it doesn't stop there. As a filmmaker, and I believe you can go to your website, because this is how I saw your films, um, the short films. You've, you were making films back in 2008, is that right, for the, the Boston 48-hour film project? Did I get that right? Yeah, I've, those are just the first films that I've made sort of public, but I did make some films before that too, but they're just not for public viewing. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, a lot of short films. And then uh, you've got two upcoming films, The Impermanence of Everything and Bay Creek Tennis Camp. One, I, I just want to derail. This is going to happen a lot. So one of the films that you did, imagine, is it Cole 37? Cole. Cole in, in 2017. Yep. Uh, it was a hybrid film that sort of mixes narrative, documentary, and animation that deals with, uh, is it a playground that basically kids sort of have this autonomous relationship to the, to the world around them? And they basically built this playground with 
saws, tools, um, campfire. I mean, do you want to explain this a little bit? Because I was totally sure. fascinated by that film. Yeah, no, I mean, I was fascinated by this place too, which is why I wanted to make the film. But in uh, Germany, it's very common to have adventure playgrounds, with, mm -hmm. with, with what we would call it in English. And um, we have a few in the U.S., although none of them are as extensive as Coal 37. Coal 37 is kind of the mother of the adventure playgrounds. And um, it's a place where children ages 6 to 16 go without their parents um, in order to play with fire, use hammers, axes, saws. Um, and they build these three, you know, there they've built these three-story kind of wooden structures that they can climb and and travel around. Um, there are play workers who work there, mm -hmm. but they're very hands-off. They're not like a parent who would be intervening all the time to say be careful with that saw or don't touch that that's hot yeah <laughs> um so the kids really learn how to manage risk in ways that they might not when there's parents around i i gotta tell you I, watching that it it felt like growing up in the 80s because your parents weren't <laughs> around and that's what you did right <laughs> but as a parent of two children i'm watching that i'm like oh my god i'm dying here <laughs> watching yeah, the um, helicopter parent in me is ooh, yeah, I didn't like freaking it. out. I was. Uh, yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right that um, actually children can learn how to manage risk. But I mean, incrementally, right? They yeah. don't just they actually have family days at those playgrounds where um, you can bring younger kids. And so they've been in the space most likely before they start going on their own. Um but yeah, I mean, we we sort of learned how to manage a lot more risk when we were younger than kids sometimes do today. And that's, I don't know what, what that means, a lot of different things, good and bad, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah, that that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> yeah, rabbit hole. It could we be another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if, if that's not enough, you are a professor in communication studies at Bridgewater State University, and you teach... Filmmaking, screenwriting, film studies, digital media, gender studies, and life design. Again, when do you sleep? Do you, do you sleep <laughs> I don't at all? teach all of those at the same time, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't have a, a ton of hobbies outside of the things that I do. I kind of have this idea that work and play are sort of overlapping for me, and so it all just kind of blends together, I guess. It's amazing. It's that type of resume or, I mean, just kind of reading all the things you've done. I feel like, okay, I'm not doing enough in life. I need to get out there. <laughs> uh, it's very humbling, but the, the most important thing is, but we have a tradition with the show. Anytime we bring somebody on, we like to do a little bit of a Rorschach test and just ask five basic questions to get sort of accustomed to what your views are on film in general. So a couple of these are softball questions. A couple of them might be a little bit hard, but I'm going to start with the first one. And this is the softball question. Okay. Good. All right. So what is your favorite movie of all time? I don't think that's a softball question. <laughs> I have to tell you. It is right totally now. a softball because if the answer <laughs> no. isn't Jackie Chan related, then it, it's, but go ahead. Uh, I mean, I think it's really hard to pick a single movie and I, I always sort of struggle to come up with these titles when someone asks me a question like that. But really, I, I mean, one of the movies I, I always go back to is the movie Little Miss Sunshine. Have you seen it? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. I, I love that movie. I mean, first of all, I, I teach that movie a lot because I think it's such an it's a, such a great example of screenwriting and introducing character. Mm -hmm. The way they introduce each of the characters in the beginning of that film is just 
totally brilliant. And I love the message of the film too. So there, and then, you know, I, it's, it was co-directed. Um, and so I, it's just, to me, that's a really interesting film. I really enjoy it. It's fun. I do like comedies. I'm a sucker for comedies. I like stories about youth and that is also in that genre, but it's also an ensemble cast. So I think if I had to pick one, which is really kind of impossible, to be honest, I would say that that's the poster I have in my office. Um, to be honest, I, I did used to have an, a poster of the film Love and Death by Woody Allen. I don't know if you've seen that movie. <laughs> I, I do love that film. I'm, yeah. Yes. I can't imagine why you would take that poster down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's he's okay. Yeah. That's a whole. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah. I did also, I do love that movie too, but um, it didn't really feel comfortable after a certain point having it yeah. in my office. So Little Miss Sunshine has taken its place. It's a great pick. It's fantastic. All right, Brad, you got the second one. Yeah. What filmmaker inspired you to be a director and study film? You know, the 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 funny thing is that um, I actually came into filmmaking as a writer. So I didn't originally have any intention of being a director. I wanted to be a screenwriter. Really? I okay. went to uh, when I did my MFA, I was I was doing screenwriting. And then I made my first film as a writer with a different director. And that was the film that made me want to be a director because I realized how little control I had as a writer. Oh, well. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, I see how this works. Um, yeah, I'm going to need to be a director too. <laughs> um, and so, but, you know, I mean, in terms of influences, you know, I loved classic movies. I used to love movies like Bringing Up Baby and The Philadelphia mm. Story. And um, I love Hitchcock's Notorious and Dial M for Murder. And I, I loved old movies when I was growing up. I watched a ton of those. Um, but I also loved the teen comedies that I kind of grew up watching as well. Honestly, I... I always feel a little uncomfortable with this question, too, because the truth is that I didn't grow up with a lot of women directors mm -hmm. in my yeah. world, as is true for most of us. And it wasn't until later that I discovered filmmakers like Jennifer Fox and Miranda July, whose work I just really love and resonated a lot with me and, and Sofia Coppola. Um, and so... I feel like filmmakers like that influence me a, a lot now as a filmmaker. Whereas when I was younger and thinking about writing stories, I was kind of thinking of the, some of those classic comedies and, um, so you're you a know. Billy Wilder fan, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Like all of those, um, situational comedies, you know, romance. I love all of that. Perfect. Love it. Um, what, so we know you love teen films. The, this one <laughs> you've got to to watch this many of them <laughs> yes and boy you, you went through some doozies uh to yeah. <laughs> to do the book but i gotta ask you this question because i was i was thinking about this as i was i was reading your latest book what is your least favorite storytelling trope in teen films mm. well i think there's a lot that bug me quite a bit um I mean, there's lots I love about teen films, which is why I keep going back to them and why I enjoy watching them. Obviously, I like more than I don't like. Um, but one of the tropes that really bothers me a lot is the trope of the kind of domineering and controlling guy who's also supposedly really great and attractive and 
a caretaker, you know, there, there's this, I don't know, I don't know if you've seen the kissing booth, but like in the kissing booth, Noah <laughs> is this kind of character, which just really bugs me. And this is a recent movie. Like this is still happening now. It's also a trope in, in uh, stories like Bridgerton and even um, uh, the summer I turned pretty, I would say is a little bit has a character kind of like that. So it's just, it's a very common trope that, I just wish would just die. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it is definitely it, around. Um, it's actually going to be, I think, a topic of discussion when we talk about one of the movies uh, today too, because it shows up right there at the end. Yep. Um, all right, Brad. I think you got the last two. Yeah. What is your favorite decade of film, and why? So this is this is also a tough question. Yeah. To this pick. this yeah. one is I to me this is the <laughs> toughest question out there. I mean, it's like for what reason, you know? Because I, I think that that I I do love movies from the '40s in many ways, but I could never say that was my favorite decade. I I, I really do like that the movies from the '90s in a lot of ways for how they kind of are showing girls. I mean, that was when I when I did my dissertation, my um, sort of main project, when I did my PhD, it was on the nineties. And I was really interested in how girls were represented in that decade because they're kind of simultaneously shown as being a threat to adult males, like seducing adults and ruining their lives. And there's a whole slew of movies that kind of have that plot, but then they're also seen as, you know, kind of at risk or victims of, adult predators and it, mm -hmm. it, you can almost like see the negotiation of like how should we feel about girls and their sexuality in that decade which i just find really fascinating night well yeah i i don't know brad you we've talked about this too i i think and and i'm i'm wondering if it's just sort of a guy thing so when guys answer this question i think a lot of times they gravitate to the 70s and 80s because of the films that, you know, hey, when you're growing up, you're mm -hmm. like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, the action uh, stuff. I mean, that that's what we were drawn to the theaters. The teen comedies, we'll get to that. A little problematic uh, for right. for us. Um, but yeah, the 90s has always been fascinating to me because the beginning of the 90s, you see a lot of filmmakers holding on to the 80s tropes or the 80s style filmmaking, couldn't figure things out. And then along come some just amazing filmmakers in the late nineties and especially independent filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I love the nineties right. so much yes. is because you have this new voice that came, uh, that was so different than Hollywood and, you know, DVD, VHS, that kind of, you know, home media really helped it out too. I don't, I don't know. What, do, you, do you have a favorite decade, Brad? Oh, it's the nineties by far. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point that the, the, um, the nineties really was kind of a, heyday for independent film in oh, many yeah. ways because all of a sudden it became possible to create films with that was just cheaper and there was more paths to distribution there were a lot of fest film festivals were really kind of in you know just kind of exploding in the 90s and yeah, that's a that, maybe that's part of what I'm noticing. I never really articulated it that way. And I think like I think you just hold on to things when you're like 12. <laughs> Cause like yeah. everything that I loved when I was 12, I still love to this day. I love so. my ninja movies, Shokasugi yeah. all day long. But I, I, this is the thing growing up, the eighties uh, represented movies for me, but it was the nineties that got me to go back to older films. I never knew I liked film noir until the nineties. Mm. 
So, and when they would talk modern film noir and even point out some of my films that I liked in the eighties, like Blade Runner were just variations of film noir. It was like, Oh, well I need to go back and learn about film, but that didn't happen to me until the nineties and it was independent films. So, right. All right, Brad, last one. Okay. What is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? So, you know, one of the movies that I just think is so underappreciated, I mean, all the sort of teen sex comedies, none of them are like heavyweight movies that, you know, are necessarily award-winning quality or whatever. So I think that one of the films that really is underappreciated is the film Coming Soon, um, because it was made in 1999, and it was uh, a film about girls who um, wanted to have an orgasm. So the whole idea of the movie is that they're already some of them are already sexually active, but they haven't had an orgasm. And so it's kind of a flipping of the sex quest film where the boys are trying to lose their virginity. They're not trying to lose their virginity. Like, that's not hard for them. They're trying to actually get pleasure. And, you know, that film just, oh, critically not appreciated. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure audiences (laughs) totally appreciate it, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's worth another look. And I think, um, you know, maybe it was like a little bit before it's time. Um, Mia Farrow's even in it. She plays one of the moms. I think it's worth watching. Isn't that an early Ryan Reynolds movie? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's why I know that film. Yes, I'm like, Mia Farrow, why do I know this film? Okay, I think I did see that. Wow. (laughs) I loved it. I'm sure you loved it. Honestly, I don't remember. When you said Mia Farrow, I'm like, I I just vaguely have. Yeah, we need, Brad, we need to add that one to the list and um, (laughs) revisit that one. That Mm -hmm. has uh, some interesting uh, cast members in it. Yeah. Well, awesome. That that was thanks for playing along, Michelle. That sure. gives us a, a little bit of background on your film taste. But the reason why we're here is this book that you wrote, Consent Culture in Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality in US Movies. And when we were having an email exchange, which uh, just kind of blew my mind, you you said, Oh, we we've got three different paths that we can take here. And I think you're being gracious because after kind of reading the book, there's like, I don't know, twenty-seven different things we could have <laughs> talked about. Um, and it was really hard for Brad and I to narrow it down, but after lots of debate and voting, we said, well, let's, let's talk about that gender swapping teen comedies, uh, because that represented something that, Hey, we had one of the films I haven't seen in a long time. I know, I know Brad hadn't either, but it was a staple of mine growing up because it always showed on, on cable HBO. Um, but it, I, I think it's a very interesting subgenre because in your book, it comes up a little bit under one particular chapter, which I did not expect whatsoever. And looking at it from that perspective started to inform me about, oh, there is a little bit more to analyzing teen comedies and what was going on from a sociology standpoint. But in your words, and this is the question, one of the questions um, I kind of asked you was like, how can teen comedies inform us of where our society is at a, at a given point in gender studies? Yeah. So I think it's, Um, It's very interesting to me because I find that throughout history, the teen movies seem to be almost delayed to what actual teens are experiencing or what actually is going on in the culture. 
Um, and I think that might be because the people who are making teen films are adults, right? And so they tend to be making films when they're, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even older, right? And so they are kind of pulling ideas from their own youth. Um, and so we're kind of seeing teen movies, but of what would have been true maybe like decades ago. Not to say they don't have some truth to them now also, um, but I found this to be very accurate in terms of thinking about gender. I mean, um, you know, we're just starting to see more queer storylines in teen films. I mean, one of the things, movies I talk about is Love, Simon, which in 2018 was the first sort of big mainstream release of a queer teen story in 2018. Mm -hmm. Like that was five <laughs> years ago. Five. That's it. Yeah. Um, so to me, that indicates that we're kind of behind the times in terms of teen movies versus what teens are experiencing or young people are experiencing. Um, so, you know, I would I think that's still true today. We're not seeing a lot of um, teen movies yet about non-binary or gender diverse youth, for instance. Um, we're not seeing really a lot of or almost any stories about uh, bisexual, or pansexual youth even though that also is very prevalent. And so I, I think that it, for some reason, takes longer for these ideas to kind of push out into the stories themselves. Um, and youth really are leading that in many ways. Yeah, you're, I, I gotta be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm holding up my book and if you can see all the... <laughs> I love it. I, I wrote like so many notes in this thing, but your, your first chapter out of the gate kind of blew me away because there were a couple of principles that you put out there that I, I never stopped to think about it, which was films don't necessarily represent the adolescent experience, but that teen films are made by adults, not adolescents themselves. And so that goes back to your point of there's just this lag, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a quote in there that really hit me, which was rather what such an examination does reveal are the cultural dominant concerns of adults that have persisted and shifted through changing times. And then you go into sort of a breakdown of film history, which man, I, I, I love, you know, when you talk about a film, a film really has to get you in the beginning, that first chapter, I, you could have just done a book on some of these decades in, in and of them by themselves, but you, you go all the way back to like the 1890s, you, you break these down into categories. So the first one was 1890s to 1934. And that part was called using you to build the case for censorship. And this sort of lays the foundation of what we're seeing, which is the early stages of government intervention versus the industry self censorship. And right out of the gate, violence was not the primary concern, but sex was. And, and that's pretty much carried through all through the decades, right? Yeah. Till this day, honestly, I mean, we're still in an age where, Sex is the dominant concern. I mean, children are able to watch all sorts of violence in programming and sex is censored. Nudity is censored. Um, and and we, you know, we're still living in an era where there's kind of a, a presumption of a toxic connection between youth and sexuality to the point that we almost can't even imagine how how a young person develops their sexuality or their sexual being that we just have this idea that someday you wake up and you're the age of consent or you're 18 and now it all magically has 
been figured out. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't work and we that all way. know it's not true because we were young people ourselves yeah. who had sexual feelings and desires and curiosities. And so, um, you know, we know it's false and yet we perpetuate it because we're afraid. Yeah. Well, that, that whole, that whole chapter, it was fascinating because you then get to the 30, let's see, 34 to, to 1950s and it was suppressing adolescent sexuality with the production code. That's what your section addresses there. Um, then the fifties to the sixties with exploring adolescent sexuality. And I, I love the section where you're dealing with the impact of movies like rebel without a cause, baby doll splendor in the grass, which then opens us up to the sixties. And, and it's kind of the sixties or the eighties, the teen sex comedy, sexploitation, child pornography, and I, I love this correlation, especially about the 80s that you you draw through. Um, basically, we go into the 80s with these comedies like Going All the Way, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Losing It, Spring Break, Risky Business, Joy of Sex, Hot Moves, Revenge of the Nerds, Preppies. Those are like leading up to 84. And then in the late 80s, you've got child pornography legislation, increased awareness of HIV as a sexually transmitted disease increased focus on combating teen pregnancy, greater awareness of acquaintance rape. And then all of a sudden the film landscape changes a little bit and you start to see films. And I think you mentioned this one, say anything, Cameron Crowe, which takes the teen romance comedy to different heights. Now watching that film in 89 as a teenager versus watching that film now as a dad, I have a different take on it. The most iconic scene of him holding the boom box and, as a teen, you're like, oh my God, that's awesome. Like he's, he's really, his heart's broken, et cetera. As a father, I'm like, get off my lawn and stop, <laughs> stop stalking my daughter, please. Yeah, stop stalking my daughter, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no doubt. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, in, is, is there any other depth you can add to that? Because I find, because we're going to, the first movie we're going to talk about comes right in the middle of the decade. Just one of the guys, 1985. But can you, can you elaborate a little bit more of kind of what was going on or what, what, the films were telling up, telling us about society from like how we came into the eighties versus how we left the eighties going into the nineties. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like uh, the decades question, I mean, the fifties was a really interesting decade as well, because it was at the point where um, the, the Supreme court having said that films were not protected by first amendment rights. And then that being overturned in 1952, I think, really was the cracked open everything. It was like, oh, wait, they are protect. They are under First Amendment protection. Um, and so people, filmmakers started getting a lot braver in the 50s. Um, and we started that. Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's where we really started to see some problematizing of gender and gender norms in ways that I think were kind of uh, a little foreshadowing of what was to come in the decades after. And to some extent, the 60s and the 70s was almost like going backwards. I mean, I know that people always talk about the 50s as being backwards, but the films in the 50s like Rebel Without a Cause and Tea and Sympathy and... Um, you know, some of these the these movies were actually kind of pushing against the the gender norms, even Baby Doll, and um, and then in the sixties, seventies, and even some some parts of the eighties, there was just kind of a re reverting back to like this is what girls are like, this is what boys are like, and um, you know, in in the 
80s, Judith Butler had written Gender Trouble. And I think there was just a lot more awareness of gender bending. A lot of musicians right in the 80s were gender bending. That was Boy George. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, Prince. Yeah. um, You were Annie Lennox, like on both ends, you Mm know? Um, And so it had really kind of that kind of gender bending has kind of come in and it's been suppressed and then popped back up and then been suppressed. And, and this, the eighties was an era where it was kind of coming back up, I think, and out a little bit, it ended up being more suppressed once again, but um, it was an era where, where there was a lot of that kind of in the, in the ether. And, you know, I, I mean, girls were wearing boxer shorts, Mary Stuart Masterson and in some kind of wonderful, like that character was kind of more, um, masculine in many ways. He had a movie called Tomboy in the eighties, which, Mm -hmm. um, you know, gender fluidity was, was happening with, with those type of titles too. So yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting you bring up the fifties because I totally forgot about this until reading your book, the hygiene film, and then how we go from the hygiene film to (laughs) the sixties, which, uh, my goodness, I, I feel like that's kind of what the 80s ended up being, but just an <laughs> inverse, right? So we start with, hey, we've, we've got this sexual revolution going on with these teen comedies. We almost end up with a hygiene film in the late 80s <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, in some way, I mean, I kind of say that the after school special was the 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 second wave of the hygiene film in many ways. Um, but yeah, I mean that hygiene film. So for people who don't know, hygiene films were were films from the '40s. Really had their heyday in the '40s, which were quote educational films, but really warnings about sexual behavior and any kind of, I mean, promiscuity, but any kind of, basically any kind of sexual behavior. But they became a way to showcase youth sex, but in only in a way where it was like, don't do this or you'll probably die. Um, you know, yeah, they were that crazy. dramatic, right? <laughs> right <very laughs> You'll end dramatic. up on the streets, homeless, living yeah. out of a cardboard box with a unwanted <laughs> right. pregnancy or something. Yeah. I mean, the stories were just always tragic. And to some extent, this was dictated by the production code because any sexual, quote, transgression had to be punished in the plot. That was the whole idea of the production code. So if you were going to have someone doing something that was outside of the boundaries of marriage and family then they needed to be punished for it. And so you see a lot of very punitive plots in that era. Yeah. Well, let's get into the films we're talking about. So you gave us two. Um, <laughs> thank you for one and you're in timeout for the other. Uh, Hopefully we're talking, we're, we think that about the same films. It'd be funny if we had the opposite. <laughs> oh, that would not be funny, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to talk about just one of the guys from 1985 and I did not know there was even a sequel to this or semi sequel. Oh yeah. Unofficial sequel, unofficial sequel. Just one of the girls from 1993. Uh, Brad, let's go back to 1985 and talk about this one first. So give us a little background when this hit the theaters and and what you could have also seen, uh, when this came out. Yeah. Didn't know I was going to be able to again, read about William Shakespeare when I was doing some research about just one of the guys. <laughs> Apparently it's loosely based on the 12th uh, night, which I did not know. Um, yeah. So release April 26th of 1985. 
no budget for this one, but a box office of $11.5 million. And it makes, um, makes 3.3 million. It's opening weekend. And that's good enough for second place. Troy, listen to some of these movies that came out when, uh, you could have seen just one of the guys we have stick. Oh, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. 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 Uh, police Academy two, their first assignment, which I always thought that was one of the dumber titles because it's Police Academy 2, their first assignment. Because, <laughs> you know, they're out of the Academy now. Yep. Uh, Moving Violations, Mask, Lady Hawk, Desperately Seeking Susan, Beverly Hills Cop, The Last Dragon, and Witness are your top 10 films of that weekend. Um, the the Last Dragon Tomato- being the best out of all of them. Yes, we can agree with that, right? Okay. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score for just one of the guys. We have 57% from the critics. That's with 14. So if my math is correct, I believe that's eight positive and six negative reviews. And the audience score of a 65%. Um, <clears throat> additionally, you could have seen these films in 1985 in April. We have Cat's Eye, uh, Fraternity uh, Vacation, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, The Company of Wolves, Lily in Love, uh, Death Warmed Up, which I'm not sure I know that one, and uh, that's about it, Troy. Not a whole lot. April was a little slow. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the good old days when April was the dumping day. (laughs) Yeah. Back in the day, that wasn't a summer blockbuster season just yet. It actually started in the summer. That's right. So So those are, yeah, the, the people who made just one of the guys, we'll talk about the director real quick. Lisa Gottlieb, um, Michelle, you familiar with her work at all? Yeah. I mean, a little bit, not, I, she's not a filmmaker I've studied other than just one of the guys, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. very limited filmography. This was her first feature film. She goes on to do episodes of Freddy's Nightmare in 88, Dream On in 94, does a couple of other films like Across the Moon, Cadillac Ranch, and in 98 does an episode of Boy Meets World. Uh, This is where it gets really interesting when we talk about the screenplay. So two people are credited to this, Dennis Feldman and Jeff Franklin, and Dennis also gets a story by credit. Now, (laughs) this, this type of film that comes out in 85, you're thinking, okay, they are going to stay in this genre, not Dennis, not at all. So he does just one of the guys in 85, then turns around and does the Eddie Murphy film, the golden child in 86 real men in 87 back to comedy, then stays in horror with movies like species in 95 and virus in 1999, which I thought was sort of an odd journey. And uh, Jeff Franklin this is really interesting. Wrote for television shows like Ver- Laverne and Shirley and Bosom Buddies before. Loved that show. <laughs> yeah, Bosom Buddies was a classic. Then uh, does just one of the guys. Does another one of my favorites growing up, Summer School from '87. Oh yeah. And then he creates this little TV show. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. It ran from '87 to 1995. Full House. So he's one of the creators for that. The cast. Joyce Heiser as Terry or Terry, uh, I or Y that's, that's how it goes back. She's come up in our discussion before. So in 2023, we kicked off, um, this year talking about John Travolta's staying alive from 1983. She's in that she does. This is spinal tap in 84 leading up to just one of the guys, a couple of other people that are in this film, Clayton Rohner as Rick Morehouse. 
Billy Jacoby as Buddy Griffith, Tony Hudson as Denise. We've got one William Zapka as Greg Tolan. Just to put this in perspective, Karate Kid was 1984. So William Zapka is making a career of playing like the bully in all of the 80s films. You Just got, wearing white gloves all the time. Yeah. Just loving the fingerless gloves. If he had kept those and signed them, he would <laughs> sell them for a mint. Um, Sherilyn Finn shows up Which, in this. Which actually, Troy, can we just say yeah. we've met William Zapka before? Oh, we did, yeah. Literally, he's one of the he nicest, is the nicest guy you will ever meet in <laughs> real life. so funny. Yeah. You're like, actually, you're one of the greatest actors of all time because in real life, you're a sweetheart. He is. <laughs> we talked for a long time with him and, and uh, you could just you could just hang out with him. He's so nice. Uh, let's see. Sherilyn Finn is Sandy from Twin, she, Twin Peaks. I think a lot of people know her from that. Brad, I wanted to mention this one. Lee McCloskey is Kevin. Um, he was in Dario Gento's Inferno from 1980, one of your favorite filmmakers. I thought I'd bring that yeah. out. Um, yeah. Before we talk about maybe the the social relevance or, or what this movie is tackling, I thought we shared just our thoughts on the film from an entertainment perspective. And, and I'll start with you, Michelle. I mean, you got to revisit this. I don't know how many times you watched it. Uh, I, I saw this, this. One I've watched a bunch of times. Okay. I actually do really like this movie. Oh, good. I'm sweating. The... Cause if you said it was the other one, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was... Oh man. <laughs> you know, you, you thought maybe I was like a really big fan of Corey Haim and you know, I just look, I don't judge like anybody, <laughs> but uh, thank God. Maybe license to drive Corey Haim, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lost boys. All right. But yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, but well, yeah. well, well so let me just put it and an aside here, which is the 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 comment you made about Lisa Gottlieb and and the career. I I didn't actually know that about her career that she went to television, but this has happened with a lot of women directors who had pretty substantial hits and then were did not get the funding to make another feature film. So this this was part of kind of a industry wide discrimination. I mean, it just was even women who broke through and were able to make a feature and, and succeeded at it often were not able to make a second feature, even when they had a success. So uh, I don't know if that's what happened to her, but seeing that she was continuing to direct, but on television makes me suspect that she's part of that larger story. So yeah. Remember when we talked about Ishtar and uh, Elaine May and yeah. just how like she had such like heartbreak kid and all that stuff where I mean, she has some big hits and then makes this charge like literally gone. Yeah. Um, one, one bomb and you were, you were done as a female. Yeah. Filmmaker. I mean, I, I just, I think about that too with like, I guess Catherine Bigelow is our, uh, I'm trying well, to think Nor, of like, what Nora Ephron. So yeah. the list of female directors who have probably sustained more than a few um, films within the industry is really small. I think you make a great point, Michelle. I mean, Facts are facts. When when you go back and look at the history of film, and I think your book does a really good job of this, especially in the beginning. The, the number of female voices, especially within this industry, even to this day, is is really small in comparison to how much their male counterparts have been able to do in the industry. Yeah, and that's not an accident. Like I think that sometimes yeah. it, there's sometimes there's this perception like, well, women just weren't making films. Well, actually, they were, but the ones who even broke through had trouble continuing a career, sustaining a career. Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, so this film I actually really enjoy as a as just a movie fan, I guess, in many ways. I, I do think that whenever we watch movies that are from the 80s or, you know, any past decade, honestly, 
you're going to notice things that make you uncomfortable or just don't hold up that well, um, whether it's like a joke or comments or the way something is depicted. And this film is definitely no different in that regard. So, you know, it's not to say that there aren't parts that if I could go back and just change it a little bit, (laughs) I I would. Um, But I think that it, it has there are many aspects of it that really work well, even today. And in that, especially in the way that, you know, Terry is going back and forth from girl Terry to boy Terry and, and, and alternating, there's kind of a fluidity there. And even at the end, you know, girl Terry kind of maintains some of the more quote masculine traits. Like, Girl Terry doesn't immediately then have long hair again at the end, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so and and the the attire, her her dress at the end is kind of morphed a little bit more and androgynous, I'd say. Um, and I find that really compelling and interesting as well. That it wasn't just a simple kind of switch back to the original Terry. She's kind of become a new version of herself at the end. Yeah. I, so let's, let's talk about Terry real quick. Um, Joyce Heiser. I really think she's the anchor of this whole thing. I, I mean, Oh yeah. This, this film, I, what I do like about it is it has all of the eighties uh, teen comedy tropes just right. front and center. So you've got the high school girl is cool because she's dating a college guy. The parents are gone for an extended period of time. So anything goes to the house. The parents are gone forever in this movie. And- I-, I love that, by the way. I love that so much. And the reason I love that is because they are not part of this story. Oh, that I wrote that down. Like one of the oh, things I find this it. so original is all of the characters. When you talk about like the conflict and the three act structure, et cetera, the parents are nowhere participating in any of this. Like everything is solved by the teens, which mm-hmm. you don't see. I mean, outside of the what the gym teacher and a couple, you know, the journalism teacher, et cetera, which are, are sideline characters, everything revolves around the decisions and the choices that these teens make and the parents are nowhere to be found, which I kind of, I think that makes it unique, right? Um, you also get uh, the little brother obsessed with Playboy magazines. Yeah, the sex pot little brother. Which yep. even shows up in movies like <laughs> The Last Starfighter. I just watched that recently with my son and um, it was like, I had to ask him, I'm like, do you, do you have any Playboy magazines? He's like, Dad, it's all digital now. I'm like, okay, got it. Um, somebody has a quest to lose their virginity, which seems to happen in all of these 80s films. You get the new kid at school trope. Um, you have to have a group of outcasts, typically nerds, who get picked on by the jock bully. Um, the nerd gets a makeover, and the bully gets taken down in the sequence. So you got all of these tropes, but... I don't know how any of you guys feel. I I feel like they're still fresh, though, within this film to a certain degree. Um, and I think that comes down to the performances and specifically Joyce Heiser, I, I think, elevates it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that Buddy's character, you know, the sort of sex crazed little brother is so over the top it, it, that it's just kind of a caricature of itself in a lot of ways like it it almost feels like it's making fun of itself even as a character like how we can't take this seriously like it is parody level yeah it's parody level (laughs) yeah um the other trope that shows up here and also in the in the other movie too is nudity and i i remember talking to martha coolidge about this and she said that um in that era 
they were required to have nudity in teen films. Required? Like the producers wanted them to have at least two naked scenes in a mm-hmm. film. Wow. And this is in the era of the 70s and 80s when it was kind of the sexploitation slash teen sex comedy. So it's not surprising that this film also has nudity as a result. Yeah, I I, still to this day, I'm always shocked at the um, revelation at the end because I as many times as I've seen this, I still forget that's how she convinces him that she's a girl, more or less. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think doesn't hold up very well in my mind. I feel, you know, I just think that there's been too much emphasis in trans or gender-bending stories about the the sort of reveal of whether it's breasts or genitals. or um, And that part kind of... Totally, it sits yeah. kind of it, it. It's incongruent to, I don't know everything that that leads up to it, which I guess is kind of like a shocker. I guess. Yeah, and I, I think that's how it's intended. And you know, there's the one thing I will say too, and and I don't know if you want to talk about both of these in comparison too at some point, but there they there's this idea of oh, who's are you gay? Like this, that's mm-hmm. not something that really was much kind of discussed in teen films of the 1980s, except as a joke, right? It was it was sort of made a joke to be disavowed. And it is here too, except they get a lot closer, right? Because the desire is there, but we're seeing two characters that look masculine to us. And we're kind of, it's almost like we're being eased into this notion of same-sex desire <laughs> yeah. in a way that feels safe to us as an audience and not so scary. <laughs> it's very um, risk averse when you're looking yeah. at it. <laughs> I'm like, if, if you're a producer in the 80s and you kind of want to broach that topic, you know your audience isn't ready for it. So it's got to be subtle, right? Mm-hmm. So Brad, just your initial thoughts on this. I mean, you sat down, you watched this one. How, how did yeah. it Yeah. I, so I had seen, I mean, I know I'd seen this on HBO and probably like USA Network too, growing up all the time. Cause I remember a lot of this. Um, and it does kind of take you back to a time and place where they just made films like this. And, and, and a lot of times when I was watching, I was like, yeah, we would never even come close to doing anything like this. Um, but I, it does have a lot of interesting aspects. Like we were talking about Terry is an interesting character and does a lot of heavy lifting throughout this whole film to the point where I think they make a point at one at time when she is playing male Terry, like she thinks like, Oh, they're just going to let me be a writer because now I'm a male and that doesn't happen. And I was, I had always kind of remembered like, Oh, she has a much easier time becoming a writer because she's male. And that really doesn't happen because now she kind of loses her voice and in, in in her writing, and I think that's an interesting as- aspect to this film. It's like, no, like it's not about. I don't know if it's like trying to say like it's not about what you know your your, your orientation, but um, it, it kind of does have a like a play it very smart, and I was I applauded it for that. But you know, and then you have. Buddy, I think Buddy is. Uh, we kind of said it is like a parody of that uh, that little brother character. But yeah, I, I just think she is so good in this movie that it's kind of 
makes this like, I won't say a classic, but it's really good. Like her performance is so good. It's so believable as both Terry and Terry, mm-hmm. um, that I, I really enjoyed going back to it. I, I was surprised at how much I, I liked it, you know, warts and all, but you know, I think, I think it's good as a uh, society that we can look back on this and say, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hold up as well, but you can still look back on it and be like, no, it's, it was, it was fun. Like it's a fun film, but yeah, it's all, it kind of all hinders on that Joyce performance. And I think it really helps that she can do both. Um, And I think we don't appreciate that as much. Um, You know, it's not like the Miss Doubtfire performance or anything like Robin Williams, but it's like subtle, but uh, I, I don't know, man. I was impressed by, by her and like even uh, Rick as well and their relationship. And then William Zabka. I mean, it just, just if you need a shit heel of a character, William <laughs> Zabka. But yeah, he could do that character in his sleep. He's so good. Oh at yes, it. yeah. yeah. I, but I just like you know, and I miss like having got like some of these people are clearly like twenty seven years old and they're playing. I know, you know so they're playing high schools like. These people are almost 30. Oh, it's it's so worse than the next one. But yes, it, oh, is, yeah. it is here. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I love that, though, the, the idea that Terry is actually, as boy Terry, very compelling and attractive to the girls, too. Right. And I think that's, again, that idea is is interesting and was kind of pushing boundaries in a way for the time that were very kind of exciting. And I think that's hard to realize now as looking back, cause it seems like a big deal. But at the time, I think that was really pushing something new that we hadn't seen. Well, yeah, before. it gets, I think one of the best lines out of the film where I think it's Sandy says um, he looks like Elvis cost or dresses like Elvis Costello and looks like the karate kid. Right which it's a perfect description of what Terry does look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the other thing I, I'll just be honest here. I, I do as much as I like Joyce's performance, I do like buddy and Billy's performance because to me it does come through like a parody. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I really like is I love the relationship between those two. So yeah. the sister brother chemistry feels super authentic in this one. And I, I, I don't know if you guys have a standout scene, the, the, I have a question though. Yeah. He is 17. Is she like 18? Like, are they like, what is it called? Irish twins or whatever? Like, is, is she supposed to be 18? I don't remember exactly. I mean, he's 17. He I know because he clearly says he's 17. So she must be 18. Yeah, maybe they're yeah. like 18 months apart or something. Yeah, something yeah. real close. I mean, they're, they're very similar in age, but he's mm-hmm. definitely the younger brother, right? Yeah. But the whole sequence um, where he, he she dresses up kind of surprises him. And you get this entire sequence of, well, let me see you walk. Okay, right. let me see you scratch your ball. <laughs> I mean, it's all of this typical, yep, that is the male stereotypical things that you would probably want to teach somebody if they were trying to get away as a guy. But there's a level of charm there and innocence that makes it funny. And uh, I, I, again, I think it's the highlight of their relationship and especially their exchange. Um, I, I, it just works. And I don't, I don't know if it would have worked without those, those two actors. 
I think that that whole scene, I've shown that scene in classes because it does get at the performance of gender. One of the things I love about Judith Butler's writing is they talk about what's called the performativity of gender. And what that means is that gender is not just a performance. It's not something that I just act out. It's something that's also done to me and through me. So I am, it's like almost compulsory to some extent. Like I don't have a hundred percent control over how I perform my gender. My gender is, is somewhat performed as, you know, by all the cultural and I'm sort of enacting what I've experienced and seen and witnessed and absorbed. And so it's, I love that notion and, and Buddy's performance there of showing Terry how to be boy Terry is is getting at one aspect of that of like here's how you have to look in order to pass as a boy right how you have to walk how you have to talk how you have to stand um it's all the external like stereotypical stuff that would have i guess been prevalent for pop culture at that time period right yeah it's it's charming can i I tell you my favorite scene (laughs) yeah it's the very last scene of the film it's so ridiculous so Buddy pulls the car up, literally up on the curb, <laughs> and then gets out. Terry comes out. They have an exchange. Rick comes. They drive off together. A woman on a motorcycle out of nowhere comes up, <laughs> picks up Buddy. They ride off. Terry, like, raises her arms in victory as they're driving off. I'm like, this is the greatest conclusion to a film I've ever seen. It is so good. I don't. Oh, I love it. Okay, but I don't like that ending, and here's why. Terry's character all of a sudden becomes super submissive at the end and Mm. it feels it just it doesn't match everything that you see of her up to that where all of a sudden she's like oh you drive the car and I I mean she's just she becomes totally submissive where up to that point um, she's really just been independent and in her own self Um, have we seen her drive a car up until then oh uh, does she have a driver's license Troy do you know (laughs) oh geez that's a good question I don't know but I think you're right. And I yes. think there's there's the the reverting back to kind of some idea of gender norms. I think the only clues of her gender bending continuing is in her attire and her hair. Um, but I think you're right that she there's there's almost like these films have to say, don't worry, we're not really suggesting anything too wild here we're really you know she's gonna go back to being girl terry and 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 all of the things that you know and love about girl terry um but you know in the beginning we see her in that like super skimpy bikini like i so for to me the clues are in the attire because um what we see in the and she's in a super short skirt in the beginning so there's some clues at the end that she has pulled out um, some thread of of that. She's kept some thread of that gender bending, and and part of it is too like Rick's character. As you know, there's there's a lot made of him not being man enough, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And and so like I think her being submissive at the end is because almost like okay, don't worry, we can play this game where you can drive. <laughs> We, we can co-own <laughs> that part, right? Okay. I don't know. It is a good point, though. Yeah. I, I, I mean, all in all, I, if if I were putting like some kind of tag review on the on the box art or something, I would just say, look, it's familiar. It has all of the tropes in there. 
but it's so likable. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's this level of charm to it. And the, there's so many nuances going on in, in the performance and even the storytelling. Uh, I, I do think it's a little bit of an underseen like comedy classic from yeah. the 80s, in my opinion. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious why more people don't talk about this one. Especially because I think seeing how um, ben- gender-, gender bending is becoming so much more prevalent now among youth, like, this is the only thing we have in terms of a legacy of not quite trans cinema, youth cinema, but gender bending at least. And well, so it, that, it's, it's, well, don't forget like, about like ladybugs and things like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, just like we kind of read into movies from the past and found queer stories. This is a way of kind of accessing gender bending before it was really actually mainstream, more mainstream. That That's a, that's an amazing segue because, um, <laughs> well, I, I just want to put a bow on it, Troy. Yeah. I was actually surprised at how not offended. I was at a lot of, a lot of right. the film. Like I was expecting way worse and it yes. wasn't like, I was definitely expecting like a gay slur at some point in time. And you don't get that. I'm, I'm like, Oh, actually this isn't that bad. Another great segue. No, no, no. The, but, but both those <laughs> points are fantastic. I mean, your point, Michelle's point, um, we're, we're talking about gender fluidity, but we're also talking about its sensitivity to that as a film, which surprises you for a 1985 film. Yeah. And Michelle, so this film and the next film we're going to talk about only get mentions in a chapter that, um, let me make sure I get it right. It's the invisibility of the trans teen, but the N is in apostrophes. So it's either the visibility or the invisibility. And you, you do make that point that, Hey, going back and looking at it, you won't find films that specifically tackle this particular topic from a social construct or what's going on, you know, from like the teen experience, but it's layered into some of these films as almost a gateway into the topic. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's films like national velvet, which was Elizabeth Taylor's first film where, um, she disguises herself as a male jockey in order to ride her horse in a race, you know? So I think there, there was, um, gender bending happening in terms of disguise from a very early, early era. Um, And then obviously during the production code, that was really not seen as, as okay. So it was, it was not common Um, just like any kind of queer storyline of, of any sort was not very common. Um, But, you know, there's, you know, I think it's really interesting that some kind of wonderful which was a John Hughes film, is one of the earlier depictions of a gender-bending teen, the character of Watts, that's not a disguise, that's not a joke. Um, And, you know, that was, I think, 1987. So seeing just one of the guys, which was a few years before that, even though it is a disguise, right? Um, It's still like you said, it's not, it's not a, as negative a depiction as we would have expected for the 1980s, but um, there really is, there's not a big um, sort of repository of, of movies that depict youth um, kind of transgressing, transgressing gender boundaries. There really isn't. Yeah. 
No, it's it definitely didn't happen in 1993 either. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we ready to? Yeah, somehow it got worse. Yeah. I feel like, right? I mean, oh god. All right, we well, went backwards. Let's like we were we were on the cusp, you know, Duran Duran and Prince and all these, right? We were like on the cusp. It was like gonna be okay, and then there was the the backlash. And so I think that the next movie we're gonna talk about it coming in 1993. It almost was in an era that was in some ways more concerned about keeping everyone in their lane. I don't know what it was concerned with. <laughs> it definitely was not concerned with quality. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's talk about 1993's Just One of the Girls. Brad, you said it had another title too, right? Yeah, Anything for Love is also what it's known as, but it's direct-to-video teen comedy. So in the United States, it's known as Just One of the Girls, and it was direct-to-video, so there's no box office um, it does have an audience score of 57 or 56%, which is completely asinine. That's way too high. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, so let's that, get that into was it. for the critics. No, the there's audience. no, cri- no critical. No uh, critic. Oh, no. Yeah. That was no a, critic would. Wow. That's not that much lower than just one of the no, guys. I know it's, it's ridiculous. And one of, my kid and I watched both of them together. I had seen them, but, um, and we decided that we would watch just one of the guys a hundred times before we had to watch just one of the girls again mm-hmm. once. <laughs> I, there are. I, so that's a hundred to one ratio, which is not really represented in those numbers you just mentioned. I might say I would do it a thousand times. <laughs> I'm with Brad on that one. Uh, this is real quick. So director Michael Koosh, um, <laughs> when I'm going through his filmography, I'm like, oh, this explains a lot. He directed a string of Steven Seagal films uh, in 2006 and 2007. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, the screenplay by Raul Fernandez, he only has two credits, three episodes of Sweet Valley High and this film. Now, the cast, super interesting here. Corey Haim as Chris. Before we talk about this film, just real, real quick, what? Michelle, what are your thoughts on Corey Haim as an actor? I mean, are you first? Can I just say that? So you're telling me that this director, after this movie, got other movies to produce, and Lisa Gottlieb did not (laughs) get. I think we're kind of nailing. Yes, we're really, we're really getting at it here. Michael did a lot of movies, (laughs) all of them direct to video. They're like, you know, he'll figure it out. He'll get better. He'll get better. Don't worry. Keep giving him (sighs) money, and he'll figure it out. Yeah, no, it's it's a perfect point. If you look at his filmography, you're like, my I God, mean, this guy's crazy. working all the time. That's a lot of films. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, sorry. What was your actual question? God, I don't remember. Oh, Corey Haim. Are you a Corey oh. Haim fan? <clears throat> Am I a Corey Haim fan? Yeah. It, it, I, he's, I, I, as much as I make fun of Corey Haim, you've got Lucas in 86 and the Lost Boys in 87, License you know, to Drive had, in 88. I mean. I had friends in, in high school who were totally obsessed with Corey Haim. Um, in fact, there was a Corey line. A hotline. It oh, was the a 900, 900 number. number. That's and right. One of my friends used to sneak into an administrator's office in our school so that she could call that number and she would just listen and I would stand watch outside. Didn't wow. they both have one? It, you could call and I, no, share your secrets with both of them. Yeah, the it was Corys. the Corey line. Oh, it was, my goodness. Yeah. But I, I have to say, I was never really a big fan. I mean, I, I wasn't not a fan. Like, I didn't not like him, but he was definitely not. Someone I thought mm. okay much about Brad. Did you have Corey Haim pinups in? Uh, well, I mean, The Lost Boys is one of my favorite '80s films of all time. So I, you know, and speaking of like it kind of gender fluidity, I mean, if you look at some of the mm. vampires in that film, but yeah, I I love The Lost Boys. I love uh, 
I don't say I love license to drive is, is pretty good. And then silver bullet as well. So, you know, that he had like that five year run for me where he was doing some stuff and then anything in the nineties was no bueno. Yeah. I, I agree. I, there were, there are some films that I enjoy. I've always felt that Corey Haim is Corey Haim, no matter in what movie he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Lucas, there's a little bit more of a stretch there, but yeah, I, I, I think I'm in the same camp. Like I don't hate him, but I was never out there going, Oh, the new Corey Haim film came out. Uh, but you know, he's always interesting. We also get Nicole Eggert as Marie. I think people know her from Baywatch. Cameron Bancroft as Kurt. And this shocked me. Like I had to go look this up because I didn't believe it at the end. But uh, Alanis Morissette shows up in the film. On the stage, oh. right? She's at the on the performance. Well, she's, she's in the high school at one point. This is where when he goes, oh, hey, Alanis, you're going to hand these out. And I, I'm like, wait a minute. Is that Alanis Morissette? And then she shows up on the stage. Yeah, she's she's singing, she's singing right? She's singing the film. Yeah. Um, keep in mind, she was she was doing a lot of pop work in Canada at that time period. This was filmed in Canada. Jagged Little Pill didn't come out till 1995. So that's cool. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, well, what if you want to know least... was bo- about Corey Haight? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> <laughs> that's that is terrible. I don't even think that. I got to go throw my jacket. But, but, but we at least found an audience for this film. Not only Corey Haim fans, but now Alanis Morissette fans. Mm. So, so that's probably where the 57% come from or whatever <laughs> is they're all on there making sure she gets a good rep on this one. Um, okay. Just justify yourself on this one, Michelle. I, <laughs> why, why did, why, why this movie? Yeah. Well, so this movie is not one of my favorites. Thank God. But I think that it has some, (laughs) it is doing some interesting things for its era. Um, Thinking about the 1990s as the time period where we finally started to get a few same-sex romances, um, you know, this was, I guess, positioned to be a more mainstream type of film, even though it, it... turned out it didn't find its audience, right? It went direct to video. Um, But some of the ways that um, the mistaken, like the the youth themselves treat same-sex desire as not as transgressive as perhaps it was in earlier eras, I don't know. It's a stretch. It really is a stretch. I, I, <laughs> I'm questioning I do myself see, no, 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 as no, no. I do see that. I think when, well, the the PE teacher. I think the PE teacher definitely yes. stands out in yeah. this as How as about an ally. Old lady, the yeah. old lady. Yeah. She, so the old lady is the best character in the movie because she's the one who's like, oh, you know, Chris dropped his purse and makes no big deal. Like it, she doesn't think anything of it. She sees Chris dressed as girls, Chris, and knows Chris is a boy and kind of doesn't blink an eye about the whole situation. And so there's clues in this movie that there is another path forward, even with older people. And so that's kind of intriguing, I think. I I will give you that. So there is, I I did kind of write that down that if you, if you think about this, because I I watched them back to back. So I watched just one of the guys Mm -hmm. and then did this one. Funny story when I, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but I did notice that it was more nuanced than just one of the guys. But when you get to this one, it's a little bit more out there. Like, Hey, we, we didn't get our hand slapped. So let's bring it forward a little bit more. And you, and you do get the adults being more accepting, which, um, 
again, I don't think 1985 was ready for that. So well, you I, think they were trying to, cause stereotypically PE teachers are men. Mm-hmm. And anytime you get a woman PE teacher, she's automatically a lesbian, like in film. Mm. And so I, I was thinking, well, may, are they trying to say like, she's a lesbian, therefore she can, she understands, but they don't ever, you know, get down that path. But, you know, it just like stereotypically it's, you know, that female PE teacher, you know about her, but they don't really. Oh, they, they make it that. a point to show her boyfriend waiting outside. Yeah. So it, it does. Oh, that's right. They do. They do. Yeah. Break a couple of stereotypes this way. But I was surprised how more open it was on that topic. And you had some characters kind of come to Corey Hames' side to, to help him out more right. or less. Not the parents, though. I think the parents are a kind of an example of how backwards it it, it still was because a little bit of gay panic in the parents total oh, huge yeah. right because they were like they didn't want him to be alone with a girl until they thought he might be gay and then they were like practically trying to set him up to be with a girl <laughs> so that he would not be gay yeah um and then obviously when they found out he was dressing like a girl that was even more like now it had gone a whole other level for them and the panic had even you know gone to the next the next rung um so yeah again that's kind of why in just one of the guys it was nice that the parents are just not we don't have to hear their opinions about what Terry is doing. It's yeah. just not about them. It's not their, their story. Whereas here kind of Chris's parents feel like an oppressive force in the film to me. It's like, Oh God, go away. They, I, so the first 15, 20 minutes of this film, I, you get a bullying <laughs> story. Okay. So it's just Corey Haim with this terrible music in the background, avoiding bullies. <laughs> now at this point, I w- started to doze off a little bit. <laughs> Now, <laughs> you know, I actually tried to like script doctor the movie in my head. And I was like, could they have opened it up with a different like I. I, I it's like... Uh, well, here's the shocker. This, this is what I wanted to share. So as I'm I don't know you if you guys do this. Kurt, the bully who is 47 years yes, old, 47 <laughs> year old teenage bully. But you, you spend He's the 15, left back a few times. Yeah, 15 or 20 minutes. You get this. OK, what's going on? I closed my eyes. It was a long blink. It was a really long blink. And it was enough to where you kind of, oh, wake up. And I'm sure the cat or me snoring woke myself up. But the next thing I see is this like erotic mopping scene in the girl's locker. So I go from a bullying story in the first 15 to 20 minutes to Corey Haim, like uh, just mopping in the girl's shower. And there's all this nudity. I, no. it I goes so offensive. It's so offensive. I, I mean, thought so, I was in the twilight zone. The guy who I mean, was running Cinemax was like making, a I, I had to go back and reverse. Like, yep, like what go. did I miss? Did I, did I sleep <laughs> like change movies or something? I don't know. It was <laughs> crazy. Yeah. I mean, so for those who haven't seen the movie, which is 99.9% of your listening audience. True. There, yeah. There's a scene where he has to, go in and clean the the girl's locker room because he won't participate in gym and all these girls come in and get totally naked uh, you see and, and just parade yes. around showering and just i don't know just 
getting themselves in all sorts of poses. And the thing that's, there's so many things that are offensive about this. I mean, like I said, a lot of these movies were required to have nudity, but this is so gratuitous. Like it, like you said, it goes on a yeah, really Christopher long Cinemax time. Was wanting this movie to have. <laughs> and also like, they're all the same body type. Obviously they're all white. I mean, that's yeah. probably. Is there a minority a in this film at all? This might be one of the no. whitest films we've ever seen. <laughs> I, I know it was shot in Canada. I mean, I know it was but... shot in like, yeah. Oh God. But yeah, yeah heaven forbid there so was a bad. girl who like was you know a little bit overweight, but no, not in this film. Nope. Um, and and then yeah. he ta- the way he talks about it later, it's just like, oh God, like this is. Then you no. get a track and field scene where he's holding a bunch of basketballs and then watching them jog, which is creepy. It's like creepy old man watching a bunch of teenage girls. Yeah, the, those sequences. Oh boy! It, mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you get it, Troy? He was holding his balls while he was watching the girls. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, I didn't pick up on that visual cue. So deep. Yeah, yes. uh, Brad, did did you enjoy this viewing or? Oh, I did, I, did I, I thought I was tripping on LSD for a minute. So. <laughs> I, did, I did not. Um, <laughs> You're not in the 57 or whatever. Oh, it is. like. <laughs> it's like terribly made. So it's hard to get out of that. But then everything that was good about just one of the guys, this thing just does the inverse of it. Um, and, you know, you think about, he gets kissed, uh, Kurt kisses him. And then the next scene, we have to have the mouthwash scene because being kissed yeah. by a guy would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And I just kept thinking about that scene in Ace Ventura. And I was like, God, oh. this is, this is the, this gay panic stuff is, is terrible. Um, and again, like, I think we're just, I, I, this mm, Troy this is a bad film, real bad film. Um, it's terrible. It, I, the, the two, the two things that annoy me like the most, mu- the music, <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate it when they do this, where they like have people that are like supposed to be really talented or like they're like artists or something like that. And they show a painting. And you're like, God, you're a terrible artist. <laughs> Corey Aiden is terrible at making music. I know. He like uses so that bad. polka sample, and I'm like, that sounds atrocious. Like it's so bad. And he got Alanis Morissette to sing a song, which yeah. is how. Yeah. Who did she piss off, or what did she yeah. owe? Um, the, she was the other, at the mall that day, and they just asked her to be. In it. The, the other thing that's absolutely terrible, and you're gonna laugh at me. The the cheerleading in here is atrocious, and I only say this as a survivor of um, going to cheer competitions where my daughter was doing competitive cheerleading. I don't know why anymore, but while I watch a film and that there's cheerleading, I'm like, yeah, okay. Maybe they've found some professionals. This one. No, no, the cheerleading's terrible in this it, F minus on. And then he makes the team like he can't even do any tumbling. Like tumbling <laughs> is a part of being a cheerleader. He has like, zero rhythm as yeah. a cheerleader too. Um, I thought he wasn't bad as a cheerleader. Oh, I Michelle. No, I guess I, you know, I have not studied cheerleading to mm. be totally honest. So. Well, Take it from an expert. He would have been a good like <laughs> base though, because he had those broad shoulders. Like so clearly has to see huge broad shoulders. Uh, this one has a problem with its ending too. Like it just ends. I think it's so weird. She she's mad at him, then she's not mad at him, and then he's going to play music. Oh my god, that made no sense. Yeah, and Alanis Moore shows up, and it's like it's over. It's like what the hell happened? That was the funniest thing. It's like I'm never going to speak to you again. And then five minutes later, it's like. It's terrible filmmaking. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) The beginning didn't make any sense and the end didn't make any sense. And I actually feel like for movies, you know, you kind of can tolerate almost anything in the beginning. 
you, you'll be like, let's see where this is going. Maybe mm-hmm. it's all going to come together. You know, it'll, it'll work out. But the end, like, no, the yeah. end has to be good. The end you has to be good. You almost sense. forgive the first act and the second act. If yes. They, if they get the landing right. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. You know. No. Yeah, and and we're and, probably over three. In this I one. think we're over three. We're over three. But Brad, I couldn't agree more about the the kiss and the mouthwash. I mean, the thing that this film comes so close because they actually kiss, and so you think, oh wow, and and at the end, they kind of make not as big of a deal about the fact that they kissed. Yeah, which I liked, where it was like, okay, we kissed. I thought you were this you weren't big deal whatever move on even when he's explaining it to the dad he's not really explaining it to like the worst way but like the immediate reaction kind of like yeah yeah that should have been that should have never happened right because without that i think it would have been actually just it made it sort of a little bit more matter of fact well it's the comedy that ruins it right so just when it starts to go down a pathway either in a character's reaction or storytelling, the comedy comes in and, and screws it up 100% either yeah. through the gay panic or, you know, the, the kissing scene with the mouthwash, the comedy is just terrible in this film. And it actually undermines any of maybe the, the small nuggets of goodness that come out through the messaging. Yeah. But I think it would have been better if Kurt ended up being like gay and he was doing all this stuff to kind of oppress those feelings because he thought they were wrong and at the end of it, like learning like, oh, you know, I actually am gay and I'm okay with it and I'm going to stop being this person, you know, in a smarter, better movie, they would have done something like that. But clearly, you know, heaven forbid in 1993, we were gay. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so I, and you can see how transgressive that all still is in this film because the parents are panicked. Everyone is panicked about the whole idea of it. Um So do you think in comparison to the, you know, just one of the guys in 85 going to this one, if if you're looking at it from a critical eye or trying to study, study it from a a gender's perspective, did we go backwards or forwards just from the filmmaking perspective? There's some interesting things in terms of masculinity that feel like they've moved forward because in just one of the guys, you know, like I was saying, this whole idea of Rick needing to kind of man up or her having to make sure that Rick feels manly enough or becomes enough of a man at the end is is sort of, you know, Boy Terry is trying to help Rick be a, a man's, a real man. Yeah. Quote, real man. Um, whereas in, in just one of the girls, Chris is actually trying to teach Kurt to be a more kind of tender man, like to not access such toxic masculinity all the time and be like this huge bully. And doesn't he make the comment he's trying to emasculate him or something? Didn't say that again. Didn't, didn't he make, doesn't he make a comment to his sister about trying to emasculate Kurt Mm -hmm. at at some point or or what he was trying to do? Yeah. I mean, but the, the irony is that he makes Kurt a better person as a result, right? He becomes someone who has more sensitivity and isn't going to just beat somebody up who he, because he, he feels powerless or like he, it actually, maybe he is trying to kind of take him down a notch, but in fact, he ends up teaching him to be a better man, (laughs) really. Which is all totally portrayed by the father because the father is teaching Chris to fight and hey, you have to do this and you have to right. you know, keep your guard up and all this stuff. 
So, you know, we have one side doing well, the other side with, again, the parents being the most, parents are really problematic in this. So, yeah. There was one funny line in that scene where the boxing, they go into the the garage and they're like digging out the dad's old like boxing equipment. Is that the grandmother? And he's like, isn't that grandma? Yeah. <laughs> he was in a picture <laughs> we of We did laugh out loud at that, but... Yeah, most of the humor is just not funny, like you said. It's just uncomfortable. It just it undermines, I think, some some like I said, some of the things that were kind of going for it. Then here comes the humor, and it's like, oh my gosh, when's this thing over? Mm-hmm. I, I was mad at you for a good forty five. <laughs> I'll be honest, I was. <laughs> oof. I was actually just, I mean, as like a unofficial sequel to just one of the guys, it was more of a curiosity thing, and I'm, I'm glad I could cross it off the list. But I will never watch this again. Nope. It is interesting to see how, you know, flipping the script changes things in some ways. I mean, you know, I don't think Chris, for instance, retains any of the kind of femininity that he accesses through his gender bending at the end, the way that Terry does in some ways, as far as I could tell, like it's, it's, more a complete disavowal. But, you know, to be honest, I don't know if you've seen the film She's the Man, which is also one of the worst movies <laughs> ever made. Um, and that film, too, like at the end, she goes back, you know, she's actually been wearing a wig. So she goes back and she has her full long hair at the end. So she's completely reverted back to like her original gendered kind of self. Yeah. I, in, in 1993, men couldn't be feminine have any sort of femininity at all they'd be sissies apparently Mm -hmm. right it's it is an interesting i mean i am i i do appreciate the chance to watch these so close together Mm -hmm. and and see what was going on because i will say your book is very good about going back and looking at something as what what i would have considered trivial films like the Mm -hmm. teen comedies and then taking a step back and just saying okay look at it from the perspective that this is this is not produced, directed, usually written by a teen. These are adults. And it probably tells us a little bit more of what was going on from a society perspective at that time period. And looking at this um, film from 85 in comparison to 93, it it does teach you a lot about where we were going, what we were getting a little bit more comfortable with, and then even some of the things that we would take a step backwards to as well. Um, but from quality of filmmaking, I, I, I wouldn't revisit this again unless mm-hmm. it no. was for homework. Um, yeah. <laughs> which like, I was thinking because I was trying to think of the, like the teen comedies that are recent and the ones that feel the most authentic. And I, I think it's like super bad feels mm-hmm. like the most. And it's, that's because at the time it was written by Seth, um, and Evan, and at the time, I think they were relatively close. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were like 25 when they wrote it, and they had been writing it since they were in high school. So it feels like it's coming from the perspective of people in high school because it was kind of written by people who were relatively out of high school. And I think that's why you get things that feel a little bit more authentic than that, as mm-hmm. opposed to having like the 45-year-old male right. write this stuff. And it's like so out of, you know... Because like if if someone were to write something from a perspective of a teen today, it'd be really progressive because mm-hmm. teens today are really progressive and in I don't think someone who's like even in their thirties or forties would get any of that stuff. It's just so difficult. 
Yeah, I always wonder why more teen films are not made in collaboration with youth, honestly. Like, it just seems like there's such an opportunity there. I know there are, there have been times when that's been done, but it's just not done nearly enough, in my opinion. And I I don't really understand why, because it seems like that could transform the genre, actually. Yeah, I, I think it would. I think it definitely would give it a clearer voice. I mean, there, your take on this perspective does bring into question like how much of these films are really geared towards adults versus the teens. So especially in the eighties, like the movies that I saw in the eighties, I probably should not have been watching because they were made by adults for adults. And it was more of their imagination or even a callback to what they thought, you know, sex was like for them in high school or something of that nature. Yeah, so, no, a lot of teen movies are rated R or TV mature. Yeah. And so they're really not technically for youth, not to say that youth don't watch them, but um, officially they're made for an older audience. And as we were saying, you know, most of these films in the 80s had nudity, so they were always rated R. Um, and uh, when I say nudity, I should clarify that that's pretty much always female nudity, female. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even today, like, uh, you know, Plan B was rated TV mature. Um, but then Unpregnant was PG-13. So, you you know, it it varies. Some stories are are clearly made for an older audience and some are not. Yeah. Well, we always ask uh, the question on whether or not a movie is a bomb. I, I think it's pretty clear for one, maybe touchy <laughs> on the other one, but I'll, I'll start with you, Michelle. If if you were grading both of these films, uh, mm-hmm. just one of the guys from 85 and just one of the girls from 93, which one would be a bomb? Which one would be uh, not a bomb in your opinion? Or, or would they both fall in the same category? I mean, just one of the girls is definitely a bomb. Okay. And agree, agree. I say just one of the guys is not a bomb. All right. What about you, Brad? Oh, I concur completely. The just one of the just one of the girls is atrocious. It's definitely a bomb. But just one of the gr- guys is actually surprisingly really good. So I'll say it's a bo- not a bomb. Yeah, it's making unanimous. Uh, I think we're all on the same page on this one. So the other question is, um, do we get our time with you? Do we get to count this as one college credit? And then the <laughs> second follow up to that is, do we have to pay? I mean, what's tuition? <laughs> we can talk about that offline, but there's going to be a test. So, okay, I'm ready. I did my <laughs> homework. Brad did not. <laughs> I did all my homework. I told Troy one of you us did. was a good student and the other one was Brad. And yes. <laughs> that's how it pans out. Hey, Michelle, can you tell us um, or just tell anybody who's listening, where do they find you? Where do they find either your films, your articles, um, where can they get the book? Uh, which I, I, I cannot stress enough. Please go out and buy this book. It's fantastic. It was, it was such a, a great read, but where, where do people go find out more about, um, your work? Sure. Um, on my website, Michelle Meek, um, and Michelle is with one L. So M I C H E L E M E E K.com. Um, you can access a bunch of my films, which are available online as well as articles I've written, obviously access the links to the books. Um, and the introduction to the book consent culture and teen films is online for free on my website. So people can download that and kind of get a, a teaser there. Um, and you can contact me that way. And that also links to all of my social media, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. 
Yeah, and uh, I think the first thing that Brad and I even saw of you was the TED Talk that you did as mm-hmm. well, which was quite fantastic, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, look, we are going to beg over and over again to have you back on. Um, this was so much fun, so fascinating. I, I've learned so much over the last couple of weeks just kind of deep diving into your literature, uh, and we would love to have you back to talk about more teen comedies, even um, uh, just other genres that you find fascinating that kind of talk about gender within you know that particular decade or, or what was going on with society. So um, you have just anytime you want, any film you want to talk about, you just tell us and, and we will gladly make room for it because this was a blast. Thank you so much. Sounds great. That would be really fun. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Uh, Brad, do we, should we just drop what's coming up next? I, I think we, speaking of Mia Farrow, we're going to be talking oh, yeah, about Mia Farrow. She was in a film in 1977 called the haunting of Julia, AKA full circle. Yes. Uh, a listener has been bugging us to do that. Scream Factory or Shaft Factory just did a 4K release Shout of Factory, it. Factory, yep. Wow. And if you listen to that episode, we are giving away a free copy of that. So we will tell you how to get that during that episode. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thank you again. It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Go check out Michelle Meek's website. Come back and listen to us um, talk about other films that bombed. And we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. <laughs> <laughs>